is going to be very painful to say, but in 1978, I know, I know. And right away, your listeners are going, oh my God, at least one old guy on the phone. So yeah, but I took over the sales team and, you know, I was a newly minted manager and I didn't meet you right away. So you probably have your own reflections upon the sales training, but you know, I was told by our manager, hey, Rick, Andy Paul is going to be joining you. He's straight from school. He's from Stanford. He's a history major and he wants to get into sales. And I think my reaction to our manager of the branch was, are you kidding me? (laughs) You know, so I say that in a kind of a laughing way because I don't know if I would have picked a Stanford history major as the person I was going to roll into this job. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now, that was Rick Blake. And Rick was my first sales manager decades ago. (laughs) He didn't hire me, but he took over as my manager after I'd been selling for just a couple months and was really influential in helping me get started on the right foot in sales. And as I said, that was a really long time ago. And if you're really good at higher math, well, then you can go on my LinkedIn profile and calculate just how long ago it really was. Now, Rick just recently retired, or a little bit earlier this year, after a long, successful career in sales. He had some really big jobs along the way, and when he retired, he was the general manager of a large division of HP. Now, this was such a fun conversation because, well, first of all, Rick shares some stories about me and how horrible I was as a rookie salesperson, but then we'll start talking about what's changed in sales over the past three or four decades. What's changed for better? We get into what hasn't changed, and we'll talk about those aspects of sales that are long overdue for change. So all of this and much, much more, as I said, stick around because we cover a lot of great ground in this conversation. Before we get to Rick, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of a review. So thanks for that. All right, let's jump into it. Rick, welcome to the show. Andy, it is indeed a pleasure to be here and probably a, a long overdue uh, time for us to uh, meet up. Yeah, so this is just really, for me, a very special episode because uh, Rick was essentially my first sales manager in my career. And uh, we sort of reconnected, what, a month or so ago? Exactly. I think all of us have had extra time on our hands, and <laughs> I, I got to thinking about various contacts, and within a f- few minutes, I located Andy Paul, and we started talking. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so we're going to jump into a little <laughs> nostalgia, but um, first, tell us a bit about you. So, you you recently retired from HP. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and and thank you for the opportunity to be here. Um, it's uh, uh, I've been looking forward to this. It's indeed a pleasure for me too, Andy. You were actually the one of one of the very first members of a sales team when I was a newly minted uh, sales manager. And yes. um, you were actually the first name that came to my mind when I started uh, poking around a few weeks ago. But uh, yes, you're right. I, I recently retired. Um, I left um, I left HP, and I should probably clarify uh, the HP that is the PC and print uh, company that you know was separated about four years ago, not the enterprise right. side. I right. left in mid February. Uh, a lot of colleagues asked me uh, what 
are you going to do immediately? And I said, you know, I just want three or four months of doing absolutely nothing. Um, I, I don't think I realized at the time how prophetic <laughs> that was going to turn out to be. <laughs> yeah. Force, as, and force time off, yes. As, as we all deal with, a, you know, obviously a lot of uh, challenges right now. But um, yeah, I was, uh, so 45 years, it's hard to say. But in, you were. In, exactly. In uh, IT product and uh, solution sales. Um, included uh, various sales leader, individual contributor, general general manager, but also uh, quite a few years uh, or several years of uh, individual contributor roles. Uh, now, of the 45 years, the past uh, little over 23 years have been with Compaq and HP, all in the public sector. So meaning uh, sales and account relationships with state and local governments, uh, K-12 and higher education. Uh, I, I have to say it was, it was a unique group within Compaq that carried over to HP uh, when when Compaq uh, was purchased by HP. And I don't think they really necessarily understood what we did, so they kept it going as is. <laughs> How often that's the case, too, is right. We we bought something we had no idea what we were buying. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think it was, uh, okay, uh, made us feel a lot better because we they, they didn't want to change us, and we just picked up from where we were and kept going. Um, I'd have to say absolutely have loved my experience in the public sector over these last many years. I, I know it's become maybe politically somewhat popular to criticize government people or government employees, but I found them to be wonderful, um, long-term relationship-type people who were just looking for help in their business. So I really enjoyed that time. And so was was most of your business done through RFP, or how, how'd that work? That's a, that's a great question. We actually um, rallied around a term contract marketing mm-hmm. to where um, – Every state or, or larger locality, we wanted to have the right kind of contracts in place. Typically, they were not exclusive to us, so we constantly had competition with others, other manufacturers particularly. And our, our job was to get more than our share of the X that was going to be spent in a particular year from a school district or a large state agency or whatever. So very much um, contract marketing, yes, we certainly got involved with RFPs also, but I would say at least in my particular area of the western states, uh, from the, you know, so the Rocky Mountains out to the west coast, it, it was uh, much more in the, in the contract area. Yeah, I mean, it sort of reminds me of the time I spent sort of parallel to and doing a little bit of, of government marketing at the federal level is that yeah, somebody had to have a contract first, right? I mean, some of there had to be in a, a program that existed that had money behind it. Uh, otherwise, nothing was going to happen. But if you found that, yeah, you didn't always have to do an RFP. Exactly. And uh, you, um, if, if you didn't have a contract, uh, you were typically on the outside of the window trying to look in. <laughs> and that was a difficult place to be. And we actually, interesting, we actually worked very hard to... We supported uh, with customers and clients, you know, uh, contracts that were multi-vendor. We had no problem competing with other manufacturers because it enhanced competition, uh, solution to the customer, best value. And we actually uh, sold that way. And I think those type of contracts in some ways were more successful than sole source. Interesting. So you sold it as a virtue that there'd be other competitors. Oh, absolutely. And um 
and and not to, not to get off into terms, but you know, again, my area here in the Western U.S., there was a um, it was called Western States Contracting Alliance that drove. Um, very successful contracts that were used by most public entities. And we uh, were a key member of that. And we had a lot of competition there. And we definitely got more than our fair share. Huh. Yeah, well, that gets back to this whole thing about relationship. Right. I mean, there's that's interesting. There's this been this sort of undercurrent trend to some degree in B2B sales over the last uh, several years that, you know, this idea of relationships is kind of overstated. And and first of all, I think, well, that's really nuts to think that because everything starts with that connection you make with somebody. But to your point here is is that was really the lifeblood of your business. Oh, ab- absolutely. And really my um, for for most of really all of those years in selling in the public sector, my, either myself as an individual contributor or my teams, uh, whether on the field or the inside, their job was to be out there. They were end user account managers to call on to retain the business with customers or to acquire it from new customers. Their job was to face that customer. The route to market, we would call it, you know, mm-hmm. whether it's directly or through a partner or a solution provider integrator, that, that was completely independent. That's a whole different discussion. But the job of, of my folks was to create that Let's just call it a brand preference, uh, and in my case, <laughs> you know, our bias was HP. Yeah. Well, and I, <laughs> this is so so fundamental, uh, and yet, as I said, it always amazes me that people want to underestimate the power of relationships. And and if you talk about government work, they'd think, oh yeah, it's all RFPs and so on. But yeah, I remember again back even selling to the DoD years ago, or watching colleagues sell to it. It's, it's like it started with the relationship. Yeah, you know, if you wanted to find if you wanted to find an available contract vehicle to fund a program you want to develop, start with the relationship. It, it, exactly, and that that would be the kind of people that we wanted, particularly in the field jobs, or or maybe we started them through inside sales and grew them into field jobs that knew how to go out and and thrive and have fun with that customer facing work. Um, and I'll tell you quite frankly, I mean, that's, that's obviously a challenge right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, having the face to face contact, it will be back at some point, uh, and will probably be more important than ever. And folks that are, have a, a, a title, uh, account executive sales representative, you know, you know, whatever term you want to use, you know, their, their, their job will be to giddy up, if you will, and get out in front of that customer uh, when the, the reopening opportunities are there. Well, I agree. I mean, I, I sort of posed this as a question on LinkedIn a week or two ago about, okay, fast forward February 2021, you're working on a big deal that's, that's even though it's early in the year, is probably going to make your year, and the customer wants you to come visit face-to-face for the final meeting. And... <laughs> and they assure you, you know, everything's going to be above board, you know, masks and so on. But what do you do, right? Do you put on the mask and go, or do you think, nah, let's see if we can do it virtually? And <laughs> it was interesting. I think probably three quarters of people said they'd get on the plane and go. Um, whether I, they I, I would hope they would answer that I, I that way because uh, sales and account relationships. It, it's it's a I'll use just loosely use the word game, but it's a game of little things. Exactly. And if if you're going to be you know if you can improve your odds by being in front of the prospect or client, 
a lot smarter than the person who says, let's do it via an awkward Zoom call that maybe the client doesn't know how to use very well, um, and uh, or a text or an email or, or a phone call or whatever. Well, even if they do know how to use Zoom well, to your point, it's and I've written about this in, in my book since, you only have to be 1% better. Right to win, yeah. You, know, you ask people what what's the margin of victory. To your point about the little things, what you know, I ask people. So when you won that deal, how much better were you than the other the competitors? And no one can quantify that difference, right? So you just have to assume you need to be one percent better. I just need to be a little bit better. And if that's getting on a plane, making the call, then in person, then go do it. It's it's an it's a no brainer uh, answer, Andy. And uh, but I would. Just shake my head sometimes for people that even in, in, in days where we were not talking about, you know, pandemic limitations, uh, people that did not get that. And what I would um, certainly coach sales teams with or try to operate myself is every moment you're spending with that customer or prospect is one less moment there with your competitor. Exactly. For guys' sakes, do it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, I think that's a perspective that's not used enough is is that, yeah, every minute you're with them, the competitor is not. And, yeah, I've used this term in the past is, yeah, you're, one, what you're trying to do is, is take prospects off the street. Meaning what you want to do is you want to reduce their incentive to go talk to somebody else. Exactly. And being there in person, having great, great conversations, great discovery calls, whatever stage you're in is one way to do that. Again in person so so let's go back to the beginning because let's talk let's, let's, okay. let's, let's talk about let's talk about me so when you took over the sales team you inherited me I, i'd only been on board maybe i don't know six months or something like that um yeah just how bad was i <laughs> well you know see, so we're early in our discussion here do i really I don't know if I want to offend you early on here, no, but no. Um, we're past you know, that. No, I'm, 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 smi- I'm smiling and laughing too. So, um, but you know, I um, I got my start uh, at the Burroughs Corporation. Mm-hmm. I I uh, in the Seattle area. I took a promotion to go to Oakland, California, take over my first sales team, and that was in. Uh, this is going to be very painful to say, but in 1978, oh, yeah. and. I know, I know. And, and and right away, your listeners are going, oh, my God, two, at least one old guy on the phone. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but I took over the sales team and, you know, I was a newly minted manager and you were actually off at training. Yeah, okay. And right. I didn't meet months, you right five months yeah. in, right? Yeah, I didn't meet you right away. So, you probably have your own reflections upon the, the, the sales training. But, you know, I was told by our manager, uh, hey, Rick, uh, Andy Paul is going to be joining you. He's... Uh, straight from school, uh, he's from Stanford, he's a history major, and he wants to get into sales. And I think my reaction to our manager uh, of the branch so why'd was, you hire are, him? You, are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yes. you know, so I, I, I say that in a, in a kind of a laughing way, because I don't know if I would have picked a Stanford history manager as the major, as the um, uh, person I was going to roll into this job. But I had to reflect a little bit that I was an unusual fit, too, because I graduated three years before, i got to point out, and I was an accounting major and went out and interviewed with uh, what we call big eight accounting firms at When the they time. existed, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That was the term we used. And I go, I don't want to do this. So I started looking for other things. I got a referral to Burroughs Corporation, had never heard of Burroughs, realized it was a computer company. 
At the time, IBM and Xerox really weren't hiring quickly. So I joined um, Burroughs, but it, it made me reflect upon you, Andy, that, <laughs> yeah, no, that I, I was given a chance. I need to give this guy a chance, too. And, and boy, you, um, you exceeded expectations. Um, I, I do have this mental image of when you did get back from class and finally came to work uh, that first Monday that I met you, I go, wow, um, dark, dark pinstripe suit. Yeah, white shirt. Look, look sharp, yeah. Yeah, um, I, I'm, I'm thinking back now, red tie. Oh, yeah. And I'm thinking, does he think he joined IBM? <laughs> <laughs> so my, my, uh, my first impression of you is that, uh, that dark suit and that little bit of a you know, smile you have. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, a, the Stanford history major. So hopefully I'm answering your question, but a uh, lot of history right there. <laughs> right. So so Brian, who was the boss of the whole branch, and at that time people, you know, don't have the history. Burroughs was the number two computer company in the world. Uh, eventually became what we now know as Unisys. But um, yeah, Brian, the big boss in the office. Yeah, he he was very reluctant to hire me. He had never hired anybody from. From Stanford, he only wanted to hire undergraduate business majors or accounting majors, and and uh, yeah, he was not. It took a while to convince him that <laughs> that, that he had made the right move. You 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 didn't um, you didn't take long to convince me though. Uh, I was impressed with the. You could analyze, you could listen well, and put together a path forward or an answer or a strategy or whatever. And I was respectful of that. And and that actually, I reflected on that, Andy, when I discovered, you know, in, in recent times that you'd gotten into the career you have now for the last 20 years. And it made me smile because I can picture you doing that of, of sales coaching, mentoring, teaching uh, strategies, you know, et cetera. It made me smile. You, you, you have a background for that. And only knowing you're doing that today you know, could I reflect on the Andy that I met in 1978? <laughs> yeah. Well, it was, was interesting, though, is that it, so, yeah, I, you joined right when I was away for like, we had the six-week computer training class. You know, they train us how to sell computers, tell us all about computers and so on, um, and a little bit of selling. And and I remember after my first two-week training class, they sent us to the first sales training is, yeah, the, you know, the response from the trainers was that yeah i was never gonna make it because i was too analytical interesting i would i would have used um i i could agree with that word for initial impression but i would also um use professorial and and i think that actually fits in well with what you're doing today and have been doing for you know quite a while well i mean i certainly let's, let's get into this topic a little bit deeper because you know this idea of of how you learn how to sell is is something that I'm <laughs> I'm passionate about, right? It's, is mm-hmm. you know, we've got this huge sales training industry that's that's uh, blossomed in this country, you know, twenty billion dollars a year spent on it, and I think that we sort of lost the plot because I think that sales is fundamentally an apprenticeship, and that people learn how to sell from managers. I learned how to sell from you. They learn from their peers. They learn from their customers. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I was in class, training class, what, uh, 10 weeks of my first two and a half well, years. We, we actually used to have training classes, which 
I, I would agree a lot of money is spent on sales training today, but I think there's a lot of people who say, wow, I wish I had some sales training, but you and I had a, a benefit of a lot of that in our early days. <laughs> that I spent a lot of time trying to actively forget. <laughs> now, now, do you remember? Do you remember? Lee uh, Boy, uh, yeah. Oh my gosh, Lee Boy. You'd have to, you know, people, your listeners will have to look up that because that's a legendary story in itself, but all about sales training that you and I could talk stories about forever. Um, they used to, we used to basically go to what a, a boot camp type sessions and be locked up in uh, hotel centers um, for two or three, or actually in, in yeah. some days, four weeks at a time. For you know, we we came out ha- having to pass those sessions and be somewhat capable, or we had to repeat them. Yeah, but I also find that that they were so different from who I was, right? I, one of the things that I valued about <laughs> you as a manager was that that you gave me the freedom to develop my own my own way of doing things. And, you know, to say, okay, yeah, we could go sell this way, but there's got to be a better way that's, that's more in tune with who I am and what I want to do. And I, I see that, you know, that doesn't happen as much anymore. I mean, managers are so, so driven by the metrics um and maybe it's because they don't have enough sales experience or they don't have enough confidence in their own ability to coach and mentor people but it seems increasingly at least in tech sales is it's all about hey we've got a process comply with the process as opposed to what can i do to help you become the best version of you i uh, i'm not just uh, agreeing with you because i more than agree with you and it was this is not unique to my experience at, at hp i'm not being critical of hp i i hear this from many colleagues in in other industries uh or and or computer companies is a one-on-one between the manager coach with their individual contributor has become a review of their salesforce numbers yeah, or their the dynamic pipeline. numbers yeah, and and what percentage is the pipeline of their quota, and on and on and on, which is all important and and, and needed to run the business. I totally respect that. I get it because I dealt with it. <laughs> but have you know we've lost track of taking the time as as sales leaders in this case to really not just ask our people what's the status of a deal, but what help do you need. What's working for you? What's not working for you? I I, I remember um, so uh, back 1978, Andy. Probably mm-hmm. when you were in class, I went I went to class, and I went to my sales manager 101 class, and it was quite an experience. It was in Pennsylvania. It was three weeks, but I remember one standout from that class, and it was taught by a, a very senior and successful sales professional. And he said, "Let me give you new managers one piece of advice," and he says, "Follow it." Don't make the first question with your individual contributor or your team member, hey, what's the status of this deal? Mm-hmm. Hey, if there's good news about the deal or they're really needing help, they're going to tell you. Yeah. Spend your time helping the person along. You know, be, be there when they need you and they're raising their hand and, and don't be there when <laughs> they don't need you. <laughs> and yeah. and I, that's why I think, Andy, I agree with you. They've, they've, we've gotten lost in the metrics sometime and, and, and our, our, our job as sales leaders is to nurture and bring these folks along. Yeah, and I think, again, I think we've lost the plot on that. And the way to do it is, yeah, I've been at, at conferences as one as that a couple of years ago where they had a panel of VPs, sales, and CROs from various SaaS companies. 
And there was sort of uniform agreement among them that, yeah, one-on-ones don't really work anymore. And I'm like, what? <laughs> sort of involuntary gasp comes from me. And it's like, the problem's not the one-on-one. The problem is you. You've got to be interested in doing it. And you have to be interested in the people that you're managing. And you have to have a sincere interest in helping them get better. And if you don't have that, then of course they're not going to work. If all you're doing it is just a deal review. I'm reflecting on what you just said there from those uh, those leaders. Uh, you know, I'm you know I I'm, I live in the Seattle area. I I would have spilled my cup of Starbucks um, mm-hmm. hearing that comment out of sales leadership because you know there, there's a there's a term out there of we have to um, uh, you know inspect what we expect. Mm-hmm. Well, I understand that. I get that. Okay, but as as sales leaders. You know, hopefully we, we have something that our teams can learn from and we can add value in trying to get it, move that deal along and turn it into a, a one type opportunity. Yeah. If you're talking about deal or if you're just talking about what's <laughs> what's going on with them. And and yeah, there's a great book out called The Coaching Habit by Michael Bungay Stanier. He's been on my show three times. Uh, love the book, love his new book at the Advice Trap. But he says, you know, the first question in a coaching session should be something along the lines of, so what's on your mind? <laughs> I'm laughing because, of course, I'm in, I'm in, I have been in IT for my entire career. We had to turn that into an acronym, of course, of uh, a W-Y-O-M, right? But mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, that is just so important. In I, First of all, I can't imagine getting rid of one-on-ones, but can't lose sight of of what's on your mind and what help do you need? Yeah. And why is, why is this important to you? Yeah, and what help can I give? It's just like, you know, we, we, you know, I think we get, we, this collective, we is, yeah, you know, oftentimes get carried away because, yeah, you know, there is high churn in the sales profession. And we know from surveys that's driven primarily by dissatisfaction with managers. And what's happened, I think the vicious circle we're seeing is that, too many sellers aren't spending long enough at one place to learn the profession, to learn their craft. And you know, if you're starting again new every 18 months, that's very problematic for your own development. And there are times where you just have to say, uh, no, it's better if I stay. And maybe I have to find a better way to work with my manager. I've got to be very clear with them what my expectations are. You know, if it's dire, then of course you got to go. But oftentimes you know, people get impatient. And I know in my own career is the best thing I ever did at one point when I was being headhunted was at a position was to say no and to stick around for another three years and got all this incredible experience I wouldn't have gotten otherwise. Yeah, there's a there's a time for changes. And uh, I already gave you one comment about what I learned from that manager class in 1978. But I, I bring up the probably the other aha moment I had in that class is we had a presentation from, I remember Burroughs was from Detroit. So Wayne mm-hmm. State University had done a study on why do people leave? Okay. This is 40 years ago, right? Right. But it's still so relevant. The, you know, the number one reason people, uh, salespeople leave, particularly field people, uh, and inside also, but we didn't analyze that at the time, was their relationship with their immediate manager. It wasn't money. It wasn't all the other things you could put on the list. It was that immediate manager relationship. That's And that I think also you turn this back into one-on-ones. Not only you, you kind of have the Y and the O here. We learn what's on their mind, on your mind, and they learn what's on our mind, the O. 
And I think that's very important because they appreciate that insight um, and, and be able to ask questions. So I, I, um, Andy, you keep beating that drum that, um, you know, this interaction for one-on-ones or whatever term you want to use is absolutely critical and, and particularly for retention of the people that you must retain. Well, so interesting from you. And so in your work, as you said, you were, had the whole West Coast, uh, public sector for, for HP, is how often would you go on calls? How often do you do the, you know, the quote-unquote ride-along yeah, um, you know, not a, not a, not enough. I, I I never I never uh, rightly or wrongly here I never was the kind who said, "Hey, I will be in Los Angeles and I want to go on five calls uh, next Tuesday." No, uh, those become exercises. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I very much approach it as let's plan a calendar, and and I don't need to go to or necessarily want to go to the cream puff type calls, if you will. <laughs> um, I want to go to the calls where you know. I could hopefully add value with you, or there's a, a relationship problem with the company, or there's a problem we got to fix, or you know, pick your topic. Uh, that's the on the end user side. Even though I was um, not responsible for or didn't own the channel relationships, I spent a lot of time with channel partners doing the same thing. Again, every minute they spent with me and my team <laughs> was much less uh, time they could spend with a competitor. So I, I really tried to do that as much as possible. And Andy, I also, um, I, this might be repetitive, but my team would remember very well. And as I always said, I want to be there when you need me and not when you don't. <laughs> that would, yeah, that would shock some people. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, but I think this is one of the things that, that again, is, is perhaps, I don't think it's a generational thing. It's a stylistic thing from a manager is, is, and I always try to do as well is is how do I help my people become self sufficient, right? Is where they don't yes. need me, and, but they need me when they need me. I'm there, and that's I certainly got that from you. And I, you know, try to always my whole career is imbue that in people that that I supervised and and worked with. Is yeah, how how do you get to the point where you you can go handle that big deal without me? Well, I, and I appreciate you saying that. So thank you. Uh, that's a compliment. And I, I think it's, it's not, it's not generational. And also thank you for that. Um, it, it's, it's, it's stylistic. And again, a, and, and I won't take credit for this. I'll, I'll give credit to one of the um, sales leaders I've had at HP the last several years who was pushing very hard for everybody, managers, individual contributors um, throughout the organization to have a general manager mentality. And a, a simple way of saying that, and I would actually use this in the hiring process, is I would say, hey, Mr. or Ms. Candidate, this field job handling these large accounts with this, you know, $50 million quotas, that's a lot of PCs and printers, by the way. That is a um, lot of PCs. A lot, a lot of stuff. And I'd say, this is, here's a way to look at it. This is as close to running your own small business as you're ever going to get without being responsible to the bank. Mm-hmm. So treat it like you're the general manager of this small business. This $50 million business is yours to run as you see fit. You, We will help you. Raise your hand for the help you need. Uh, there's extensive resources at the company, and most companies have extensive resources. Not uh, Take advantage of that. And, and I think that was... Uh, aha moments with some people. And I think it helped them uh, not only run their business better, 
but have an enjoyment about it. Hey, I'm the general manager of such and such a business in, in this part of California handling these major accounts. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's that sort of ownership mentality you wanted people to have anyway, right? I, I don't know if it was you or, or Brian or Ray, uh, the other sales manager that, that actually hired me. Oh, yeah. I remember Ray very well, yeah. Yeah. Is, uh, or so saying, you know, you're sort of, you're the CEO of your own little business here in, in sales. You know, we had a well, line of business, uh, sort of vertical market type, type, you know, territory that overlay a geography. But yeah, I always sort of tried to take it that way. It's like, okay. And I, this is what I enjoyed, I think, about sales so much is that I was given that freedom. And this is, this is I think, such how so hard today for so many sales managers is to trust their people and develop them to give them that freedom to go out. And I said, do the best work, be the best version of themselves, be able to grow into you know, bigger responsibility. And yeah, you have to take some chances with that. You, you, you absolutely do, and you, you give it as much free reign as possible because generally, you know, good people you've hired will do good things, and if they screw up, <laughs> you know, that happens. You, mm-hmm. you help fix them. You help teach them again. Um, if there's just a fundamental miss here, you help them do something else. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, I, and I, I, I think it's become really – I think first-line management – in, in many organizations is one of the more challenging things there is because the demands from the middle and upper management on these first level managers is just increasingly um, uh, time consuming. Yes. Yet at the very time that your job is nurturing, bringing along these very valuable teams and winning and growing your, your business. Well, but you're absolutely right, right? The demand for reports and that so on and so forth all comes from above the frontline manager. And yeah, as, as a result, many feel compelled to spend more time focused on that when they should be spending it developing the individuals. And, and, and you know, and I, I can take this a step further and say that's why uh, I think in, in most positions I've worked in over these several years, um, I valued that relationship with my management to be given a similar, hey, uh, you run your business, general manager mentality, if you will, um, bring up the kind of help you need, and we'll be there for you. And I, I, I have appreciated that over the years, and I think a lot of people have that. I Obviously, I'm biased. I came from HP, but I think HP has done well pushing that attitude among up and down the organization. Well, and I... Yeah, and you can do it at a small company. You can do it at a startup. Yeah, even though the investors and the VCs and everybody wants you know the information. Yeah, I've worked in enough startups, grown teams in them, where I was fortunate to work for CEOs that that took that attitude. Right? Is yeah, it's your business. Uh, operate the way you want. Uh, you know, here are the numbers we're expecting. Light touch relative to you know day to day expectations and reporting. Obviously, at board meetings and everything, you have to be prepared for, but. You had the ability to sort of have this this freedom and flexibility, which for me was hugely valuable. You know, when I was interviewing for for jobs, being recruited to come to a company to take over sales, it was that was one of the first things I wanted to know is what that environment was going to be like. Was I going to have that that freedom to to put my own stamp on and develop the people the way I wanted to? Yeah, it um, uh, it it's a fun part of the job too. What you just described, uh, I had any number of people. Um, 
asked me in, in February when I was leaving, and, and I actually had several months to work transitions and was able to, um, though I didn't make the choice, I helped uh, propose people who would step in to replace me, and then, and boy, right guy got the job. And uh, so it was kind of a long goodbye, if you will, over several months. But people would say, oh, I'll bet you're really glad to get out of here and get on something else and either some other job or retirement tasks or whatever. And I go, well, yes, I'm excited about next steps and creating opportunities for other people. But I really liked what I was doing. And I could I, I could have stayed with it. I, I um, you know, do, do I miss the people and experiences? Absolutely. Uh, did I want to create opportunities for other people? Sure. And, you know, and there's, there becomes a time for everything. But I think it's terribly important that the, particularly the first level manager, he or she shows off that they really like doing their job mm-hmm. because that's going to inspire other people to be, want to be part of that organization uh, or, or perhaps aspire to that role if that's the career path for them. All, all very important things. Uh, I always would shake my head about the the first line manager who would be so negative and critical about all the miserable parts of their job. And I'm thinking, wow, why do people want to be on that team or why would they want your job? <laughs> <laughs> well, but it's such a great point, right, is that managers have to role model or model the, the behavior that they want people to, to follow. And, and, yeah, if you're a technocrat, yeah, if you're just – paying attention only to the dashboards and your pipeline coverage ratios and you're not out talking to customers, you're not there saying, okay, how do I help this person get better? How do I help them achieve what they want to achieve in this job? Yeah, make way for somebody that wants to do that. Well, exactly. And it, and that, that customer and partner, depending on your industry, um, interaction is just so much fun. I would always ask the, uh, we're heading, we're heading, planning a meeting, um, uh, but uh, and there would of course be detail that'd be part of the meeting. But it was very important to me to say, okay, you know, Mister or Ms. Uh, account Executive, what what do you want said? What do you want not said? <laughs> mm-hmm. That's important. Um, yes. What what's what's the, uh, what's the most difficult question you would hate to have this customer or partner ask us? And okay, who's going to answer that? And what's the answer? And and we would rehearse that particularly. And then uh, what I also enjoyed, just because it really led to, you know, the customers are telling you what it takes to have a better relationship and how to win their business. I mean, exactly. Surprise. I would always, I would always somewhere in a meeting, um, particularly with a an important retention customer, because we balance both retention and acquisition. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say, Mr. or Ms. Customer Executive, just let me ask you simply here: what What would you like us doing more of with you or for you? But conversely, and maybe more importantly, what do you want us to stop doing to you? <laughs> and, and, you know, Andy, it would lead to just very rich conversations of the customer giving trends. That, first of all, it might be a little surprised with the question, mm-hmm. um, but very rich conversations about what it takes to please them. And it's on both sides, pre-sale, post-sale. It's such an important thing. That's why I brought up earlier is, is I think I learned a lot about selling from my customers and well, they're they're I, telling you what it takes. <laughs> te- well, if you do it, they're gonna. If you ask the question, they'll tell you what it takes. And I don't know if you remember this one deal I was working on. Uh, I think you were still there. Was, um, this chain of of jewelry stores in the Bay Area, and the oh my oh my gosh, I'm reflecting. Um, 
I, I'm not sure we should use names, but I think I'm no, reflecting no names, on they were they were based up in Vallejo. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and the owner was this older guy had built this business, his family business, and he was going to give me the order, but he wasn't giving it to me. <laughs> and I just remember he finally at one point told me, he says, "Yeah, I'm not giving it to you because you want it too much right now." Right, and it was just like this. Wow. What? What? He says, "Yeah, yeah." You're just all about wanting it, not thinking about me, right? And what we need, and so on. And what's, what, what? What sage uh, uh, insight and advice? You know? Yeah, and it's like I got tons of stories where customers, you know, basically, if you ask the question and you're open and you're willing to be vulnerable, they'll tell you how to win their business. You know, I, I recall um, a dear, dear uh, colleague of mine. He was actually a different life, not Burroughs, not HP. And he was from uh, southern Alabama. And, and, of course, he always pointed out to me that he looked, he looked like your stereotype of a southern sheriff. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and, and, down, and he would clearly call out that, hey, Rick, down here, L.A. means lower Alabama. <laughs> okay, but he he would teach the concept with his teams. He's very simply. He says to he'd say to his into his uh, sales executives, you know, real simple here. God gave you two ears and one mouth. Right. He's trying to tell you something. Yep. And because the customer is telling you what it takes to please them and win the business and retain the business. Yeah, and and people always think about this in the context of oh, let's do this trial close, and it's like yeah, it's not about trial close. It's about having a conversation. It's about building that connection with someone. You build that trust, and then you can have that that open conversation about well, what the what do we need to do to win this business? I, I recall a a, a and it's and it's, it, it's a good lesson for today. Um, we were having a, a difficult close type meeting with a large enterprise. And a round table, and they had some viewpoints that were different from our viewpoints. And we were, we, neither one of us, or neither side was getting there. And I said, okay, let, let's, here, here, here's a blank piece of paper that's on the middle of the table. Here's a pen, too. Okay, you write down some things that would help um, what you need to make this happen. We'll do the same. And let's see if we can come to agreement. <laughs> The the executive of the meeting stood up and says, this is sales tactics. The meeting's over. And I said, I'll take that as a compliment. <laughs> did you get the deal? Eventually, yes, we did. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, there are, it's not like there aren't tactics in sales, right? I mean, it's, 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 it's. it's it is. There's an element of a game to it, and that's you that's know, okay. And it's part of the fun. Customer, you know, you can have just a lot of fun with it. And uh, as we all call uh, campfire stories, most of them probably happened, and <laughs> you don't have to fluff up the facts at all because they're true. And what what wonderful experiences to tell! But that is also one of the rewards of sales. And I I hope that uh, you know people are taking the time today, whether in sales management or in the sales teams themselves, to enjoy. Yeah, well, I, I think that's absolutely true. It's I've been incredibly fortunate in my career to sell all around the world, and you know, six continents, and wow. uh, yeah, I meet incredible people, and 
much as part, I think part of, you know, sort of tied to the reason I do this podcast is you meet all these incredible people and you learn something from all of them. What an experience that's, uh, you know, around the world and, and in the, you know, the whatever levels of organizations, I mean, Andy, you know, flashback to, I, I have to go back to the visual again. Did any of the customers you called on, uh, as a new salesperson in the East Bay of, of California, did any of them wear a tie, let alone a three-piece suit <laughs> no, or a no, white no. shirt? Uh, <laughs> well, no, I, I, may I just sort of wrap up with my story. My first order was on a Friday afternoon. I was feeling kind of disheartened. We were selling these desktop adding machines, uh, you know, the size of small microwave ovens. And I said, okay, I'll make one more call. And I, so I knock on the door of this place called Bucks, Bucks Welding. In, in Fremont, California, or Union City, one of the two. And, yeah, the inside of this, the walls are just completely black from all the soot from the welding and so on. And, and Buck comes out, and he's got his you know, work jumpsuit on. His face, his hands are completely covered in grime. And he sat there very nice. I was in my black suit with my white shirt and my red tie, demonstrating he wanted to see this, this adding machine we were selling. And... I thought, huh, okay. So I do my best demo as was, such as it was at that time. And to my surprise, he said, yeah, I'll take it. And he wrote me a check. I'm thinking, wow, this has got to be a pity sale <laughs> because <laughs> as I'm sitting there. He's you know, hands-on, business owner, blue-collar. I'm in my fancy suit, uh, nervous as hell. And... Uh, I think he did me a favor, which I always appreciate. You know, uh, everybody needs that. Take it and run. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, the, yeah. The, the confidence needed. And what you just described there, I think, is I, I feel so much for today's individual contributors. Because think about what you were doing at one time or, or people in you know other like companies. Mm -hmm. They would have some amount of training, some, some quite good, some need improvement. And they would be out selling certain more, let's call it more entry-level type products or solutions. Yep. yep. They would get proficient at that, hopefully successful too, <laughs> and and graduate to higher-end product sales complexity solutions. Um, very much a stair-step type of thing. And there's many industry examples of, of how that was the case. I think about today's sellers of the absolute information overload mm -hmm. of uh, and, and I know it's an overused term or phrase of, of drinking from a fire hose, but it's very true. And how challenging to keep up with all that and have a fundamental knowledge uh, to be uh, uh, proficient and confident and being out in front of that customer. I, I It relates back to sales and product training um, one-on-ones, all these things, but boy, that's a, and, and, and our solution is virtual training that people at best are paying 50% attention to. Um, I, I think that's a particularly a challenge of, of our teams and, and the sales executive types. I agree. I think that, that, um, yeah, the, the expectations are, are higher sooner today than than they were with us i believe um i mean i think sales is hard I, I resist people that want to make you know intergenerational comparisons about oh it's so hard today it's like eh, it's just hard it's a hard profession it's just, it's just different it, it it's different i 
you probably, you know, get involved with um, helping organizations with onboarding. And again, not unique to any particular company, particularly with field-based people. And now, uh, whether before or after pandemic, you know, too many companies have their onboarding here is here's the home office person. Here comes FedEx with their laptop. <laughs> and there's one page of web links they got to go to, and there might be a message from their manager that says, good luck. Yeah, well, yeah, I've talked to a lot of sellers have been, uh, or companies <laughs> that have been onboarding sellers remotely during the pandemic. We actually, we've done some ourselves. Yeah, it's, it's uh, yeah, I th- I th- but I think sort of the, the critical thing that seems to be hard for companies these days is to understand that, that yeah, you've got to, you lay out a 90-day onboarding program is... What, what's your expectation for what really should be happening at 90 days? To your point about you know, starting with entry-level products and work up to greater level of complexity is that, yeah, it's unrealistic to assume that someone's going to be at full productivity after 90 days, an entry-level sales job. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's not going to happen. And so one of, one of my um, uh, team, uh, well, I still consider him a team member, but ex-team member because I've left. He describes this so well, so I'm, I'm not taking credit for this, but he has very good perspectives of many years in sales. And he says, for somebody joining an organization, uh, it's an 18-month plan. Sure, you need your 90-day plan, but it takes, 90, it takes a year and a half to ramp up to comfort and success and relationships and networking. And, you know, if you're on track for that along the way, and particularly at the end of the 18 months, great. Um, if not, <laughs> at 18 months, better find something sure. else. Sure. But as an organization, though, they need to be prepared to give people those 18 months. That's 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 the thing Bingo. that's missing. Bingo. And, um, you know, I look at sales uh, leaders that can make a difference. Okay, we, we, we talked about all the complexities of, you know, information overload. Well, if, I think some people in some organizations wait for the epiphany that's going to come down from headquarters that here's the wonderful training plan that will solve all things. Well, and, okay, might be waiting a while. And, um, mm-hmm. I, you know, in the last couple, three years, I saw examples of one of our public sector uh, executives or VPs saying, okay, we, we, we got to move fast here. We've got a lot of new products we're dealing with and solutions. We're, we're going to invest in the teams. And we will create our own curriculum using internal resources. And we will put people into face-to-face boot camps. And we will um, – it will be in-depth. It'll be difficult. Uh, there will be tests out uh, and certifications. And there will be not not just role-playing, because, I mean, introduce the person to me that likes role-playing, but um, uh, <laughs> there will truly be presentation skills experience and test out that peers will evaluate and, and give the um, – folks a report card well and making a kind of a long story short i give that executive a lot of credit for saying hey we need this let's go get it done yeah well and too often companies don't make that investment i was giving a a talk to the ceos of a portfolio ceos of a private equity company and and posed the question to them okay who's who's raising quota next year for your teams and they all you know raised their hand i said okay well how many of you put together a training plan that will produce the increase in productivity that you're going to need in order to hit those higher quotas? <laughs> no one. You get a lot of uh, crickets there, Andy? Uh, complete, <laughs> complete crickets, right? So let's just keep raising quota 
but let's not invest in the people too. And I think that 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 relates to a a I'm just reflecting there on a uh, an executive in a, in a different life uh, before HP that I really respected, and he he would give inspirational talks to the regional teams and say, you know, we have a tough business. You need to look at these very valuable salespeople we have and say, okay, maybe that person's quota is $10 million, let's say. Mm-hmm. If you lose that person, that's $10 million that's walking out the door. And you're not going to retain all of that. You might even lose it all. So figure out how to retain that person and keep that $10 million, and they'll probably grow it too. Sure. And, and I know it's a simplistic uh, comments to make, but, you know, what an opportunity for all of us to view our very valuable resources that way. Yeah. No, it's a great, great, great perspective. All right, Rick, unfortunately, we've run out of time. Oh, my gosh. This has been a pleasure. Andy, it's been an absolute uh, pleasure for me, too. And I think back to, you know, you, you, me, both of us, we're college hires. Yeah. And, and if I could impart one other advice here, mainly because I've experienced it in the last couple of years, we all need to look for every opportunity we can to overcome a roadblock and take a risk and bring in college hires into the field and recognizing all the challenges there are mm-hmm. to figure out ways to get past them. And um, I had experience with that. I enjoyed it. I saw success. Um, it's something we all need to double down on. And it goes right back to somebody took a shot and gave, you know, me, the accounting grad, and you, the history grad, <laughs> an opportunity. Yeah. Worked out. Well, I think it's, yeah, to that point about patience, right? I, I saw this thing a couple years ago, <clears throat> big soccer fan, and was reading about this this coach at one of the biggest soccer clubs in the world and and they say, you know, we can never tell at what point in time how it's going how long it's going to take for the player to get it, right? He says, so what we do focus on first is we focus on training the person first, then we train the player. And I think that's such an interesting perspective, right? We're we're bringing in people straight out of college, they don't understand business, they don't understand working in teams, there are lots of things they don't understand. Yeah, we gotta we gotta train them as individuals first, as humans, and then train them as sellers secondly. And we gotta take a risk with them. Yeah, you know, and and recognizing that yeah, it's it's uh, not easy to do, and we lack the onboarding and this and that. But let's give it a shot. Um, <laughs> you might uh, last comment. You might enjoy the uh, the candidate that was referred to me and was coming out of an Ivy League school, and for all the right reasons, wanted to move to the West Coast. And convinced me of that. And um, two years into it, he's doing great. And guess what? He was a history major, Andy, from that um, Ivy League school. So maybe that ties it back to uh, back back to the beginning. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the lesson is go recruit history majors. They, they need- <laughs> <laughs> I want to I want to hear that on your next. Uh, they need jobs. So clearly, I want to hear that on your next podcast. <laughs> All right. All right, Rick. Andy. Thank, thank you. So thank much. you for the opportunity. Take care. Be safe. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my good friend and my first sales manager, Rick Blake, for sharing his 
insights and wisdom with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you could also leave us a rating or review and let us know how we're doing, well, we'd certainly appreciate that. You can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this podcast is over. So thanks for your help. And thank you so much for investing your time with us today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.